Hey gang, it's John. Thank you for listening to a very, very special episode of Promo Mode. This time we are welcoming back uh, Mark Brzezicki, drummer of Big Country, and for the first time, Tony Butler, bassist of Big Country. You might remember Mark was our very first, first birthday special guest. In fact, I basically started, one of the inspirations or reasons for starting this podcast was that I love this band, Yan does too, they were big for me, and the thought of someone like Stuart Adamson committing suicide and wondering if he felt loved and thinking, if I have the power to let artists know that I love them and what they do matters to me before it gets to that point, then I'm going to take on that responsibility. And that's that's what's driven the last eight years of interviews. That's why I end them all with telling them I love them, because I do. So anyway... Cherry Red Records recently, last month, released a four-disc deluxe reissue of their 1999 album, Driving to Damascus. That album ended up being their last album because Stuart, of Stuart's uh, suicide. But it's too bad because it was, the, it was such a great album for what it was at the time. The guys were trying to sort of reinvent themselves after those bagpipe years into what the next stage would be. Stuart moves to Nashville, kind of takes on a different sound, and it takes them a while to find their footing, but they do it with Damascus, and it is so good. This was the first single off at Fragile Thing, and unfortunately, the album just didn't, it underperformed for a lot of reasons that we talk about in here. So anyway, the deluxe reissue is so worth it because it's got the album on there, obviously, but it's got all the demos and the B-sides and the acoustic Nashville sessions, and all this, if you're a big country completist, like we are, it's a treasure trove of goodies that you probably didn't have already. So anyway, originally, this was supposed to be all three original members, Bruce Watson, Mark, and Tony. Bruce, unfortunately, never showed, and Tony showed up late. So the first two-thirds of this is me and Mark kind of reconnecting, and then Tony shows up near the end, thankfully, and so we catch up with him as well. I, as you guys know, I and Yan, I'm speaking for both of us, love this band yan lives in the town that they started from and uh so they are a big part of our dna we are so honored to have these guys back on our show i hope you enjoy it so okay so we're going to talk about this driving to damascus re-release it's a four disc kind of um you know bonus uh, deluxe edition i the thing that strikes me most about the album is that number one, it's basically the last real, true, big country album of new material. But secondly, it sounds like you guys finally found your footing after those original, I think of them as like the Ebo years, you know? Those first few yeah. albums of you guys with the Ebo and the Scottish sounds and everything. And then there's a couple of albums like Why the Long Face and piece in our time of you guys trying to kind of find a new way and it feels like you found it so thoroughly on damascus but then that was it so what are your memories of making this album yeah it's a very interesting thing um you know what the public don't see are the gaps in between the records mm -hmm. if you like because you know we're we're real people living real lives and when you're in a band it's a family yeah family's a close-knit unit you know, we're fortunate enough to have been in that family a long time, uh, you know, God bless, when we still had Stuart. And things move and change. Nothing stays the same. And those first three albums are very were, were kind of seen as our golden period, if you like, although I think the rest of the albums stand up just as strong as those. Absolutely, but what they do. The first three albums was we were a new band, the first record, you know, was what gave us the the launch to the to the to the world, if you like, mm -hmm. with that bad pipe, if you like, guitar sound that, that I always thought sounded like bad pipes, but absolutely it, it does. 
Yeah, I mean, the band would hate it when, you know, if, if Stuart was here now, he would he would be prodding me, say, you can't call it bagpipes. To him, it was just guitar playing, you know. Really? Like, with twin guitars, yeah. So get, just, just to kind of get my, my view on what we just said, the band Evolve, you know, we had a multi-multi yeah. record deal, which yeah. is, you don't get these days. So the idea of that is that they, they invest in you, in your, in your career, and your career grows. Uh -huh. And as you learn your craft and you, you, you see, you know, you, you, only through time passing and looking back, you can really see how things have moved on or are progressing. And yeah. it tells its own story. And I think we're driving to Damascus. It tells the story of the band completely evolving, almost from the shackles of that bagpipe guitar sound to, you know, th that kind of continuity of that big Celtic thing that we mm -hmm. nobody was really doing. We kind of put our name on the map to create that kind of new music. I mean, I yeah. think Big Country, without diversing from your question, was was and is one of the most original sounding bands I've ever been involved in. 100% agree. That reason, as a drummer, is I do, do many sessions, I do a lot of session work, and I was a mm -hmm. session drummer <clears throat> with Pete Townsend and many other people before that. My style was able to evolve in big country. It, it was a, it was a template with the chemistry of the unique guys, Stuart, Tony, and Bruce. That because I'd already been a rhythm section with Tony Butler for many years, with Simon Townsend, Townsend's brother, and then on to Pete Townsend and Roger Daltrey and many others I could name. Yeah, you know, the band became an outlet for me to to to, to pretty much invent something new. Hmm. Uh, and with Big Country, you know, when, you, when you're doing a session, as much as you're bringing your style to that music, I hadn't really evolved into that kind of Big Country's drummer at that point. The music was very rousing. I thought the, bag, it's, the guitar sounded a bit bagpipey. And I'm from London. I'm not a Scots guy. You know, the band comprised of two Scottish guys and two London guys, me and Tony, as a rhythm section. And for me, I thought, well, I'm going to be doing that kind of, marching off to war strident you know yeah uh, yeah I, I loved i my one of my my heroes phil collins but outside i love a load of drummers from simon phillips to uh steve gad who steve gad played on that great record with paul simon 50 ways to leave your lover mm -hmm. and he put literally snare in there you know mm -hmm. in the front of the song and i thought i'd always loved that style of drumming where you're using rudiments within the drum kit which is kind of Stopping your cap to the military rudiments, but you're bringing it into contemporary music. So I thought, yeah. well, I can I can kind of tap into that style with big country. So the rolly military stuff happened, which suited the band. Yeah, a um, lot of tom work and things, which we were coming out of uh, the punk thing to new wave, and it was progressing into. So yeah, there was that kind of powerful thing about the music in the and so in the those early days. I, I'm not going to say the word cliche because it's the wrong idea. That that could be a hindsight thing. But we, we didn't know what we were doing is the truth. We were letting the art form find its own feet. Interesting. Yeah. You know, it, 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 it what came out was very natural how we all played individually. Yeah. And then we came together, we could hear sonically this whole new thing. Mm -hmm. I remember going back to the time when I was asked, when I was approached, we were both me and Tony were working with Pete Townsend live uh, in Brockwell Park in, in in South London. There was a right to work march, some campaign, and the Pete Townsend band was put together because me and Tony were working with Pete on his albums, on his solo albums. Mm -hmm. Pete asked if we would do this uh, show for you know this for the right to work march. There was a support band that was managed by Stuart Anderson's ex manager. Mm -hmm. They were called the Members. And they were supporting the Pete Townsend band that me and Tony were involved in. And they approached us to say, look, Stuart Adamson, who we already knew going back to um, his band, The Skids, me and Tony, the rhythm section from Big Country, were in a band called On The Air. And that featured Simon Townsend, Pete's younger brother, who's also in the hoop for many, many years. Mm -hmm. So we, we, we had a record deal on Warner Brothers, WEA. We signed a record, uh, two singles we put out. Uh, I think they got the top 100 in the charts but um nothing really happened uh other than we were now working with pete townsend and the manager of stuart adamson 
I put this new band together. Uh, well, Stuart put a new band together with Bruce Watson from Big, who became was Big Country. They had a kind of a Mark One version of Big Country, trying out local guys in Scotland that weren't working out. Hmm. Basically, the company said, "If you find a rhythm section, it's got to be good. You know, we've got a major record deal here. Find two young guys that can do it that you're happy with, and if we're happy with them, you're good to go with the record deal." Hmm. So that. Ian Grant approached me and Tony because he was the manager of this band, the members, and he had been managing Stuart Adamson in the in the latter part of the skids when Stuart before he left the skids. And he was looking for a rhythm section. So he approached me and Tony and said, What are you guys doing? And we were like, Well, we're doing this and that and session this, and we're with Simon and well, I'd like you to meet Stuart Adamson and uh, meet them at the record label in Phonogram Records in London and um, see how you get on. And we said, well, we already know him because we did a little support tour with with the Skids, with our three-piece band, me and Simon. And he's a great songwriter and he's got very characteristic guitar sound, you know, so much so that The Edge gave him a great accolade at, at, at Stuart's wake, you know. Mm -hmm. He he was very influenced by by the Skids and Stuart's guitar. You can guitar. totally hear that, yeah. So, you know, I knew I was dealing with something quite unique and the twin guitars between Bruce Watson was not unlike Thin Lizzy to me, where you had that yeah. twin guitar, but it also had that Celtic drone because mm -hmm. they didn't yeah. do, as they say, they didn't play the blues notes. Mm -hmm. They didn't play the black notes. They didn't play, they played very triad, you know, you know, they, they didn't go major to minor. Mm -hmm. <laughs> when mm -hmm. I first heard the music, John, I thought, I can't work out what I'm listening to. I wasn't sure if it was great. I, I, it was either absolutely ridiculously amazing or is or is absolutely rubbish. Uh -huh. I wasn't about it. I thought it doesn't fit in anywhere which I'm used to right. hearing. As a, mm -hmm. what can I bring to the table with it? I thought, well, one, and I thought actually I could bring quite a lot uh, because it was so different. You sure did. Yes, there was a canvas to create your own thing. So getting back to your question, the first three albums were pretty much based on the chemistry of the band, uh, playing live, that, 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 that whole, you know, you have the honeymoon period with the band, it's your first album, it charts, then you've got the second album because you won the road with the first album. Right. But we worked very, very hard as a band. We hardly went home. We were constantly on the road or in the studio. Yeah. In between. So those first three albums were like bang, 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 riding off that unforeseen success. I had mm -hmm. no idea successful i mean we had a good record deal so the powers behind us were were all primed to make something happen but you still got to deliver the music and people have got to like it you know yeah but i had something special and i think every album special but in between those gaps of making those records we're all living and growing and getting older and people have got families and children now and things are constantly changing and i think we got typecast with I know Stuart was very aware of the fact that he was either damned if he made any changes musically or he was damned if he if he it, stayed the same. Yeah. You know, we had a kind of a love-hate thing with our music because it was like, do we sound samey? Well, mm -hmm. if you're a good band, you should sound unique and you should have that footprint that's uniquely yours, mm -hmm. and we certainly have that. Mm -hmm. um, at the same time, you know, you want the band to grow, which is why they invested in, in a multi-album record deal. Yeah. And I think Rivington Maskers shows that before and after incredibly well. But you have, to said. Join, you have to join the dots up to say, well, we didn't just go in the room and say, let's make it different. You know, we evolved that way. You know, there yes. are albums in that as well, and demos and all kinds of musical experiences and, and life that we live to get there. Yeah. And I think, I think that Big Country always had a wide variety of musical directions that we could take because everyone in that band was like a lead instrument player, you know, from the That's drums. on. Very true. Yes. You had lead guitar, you had a lead bass, you know, very mm -hmm. busy playing. It mm -hmm. wasn't busy for your sake. It was just how it came out as yes. I was with that chemistry and what mm -hmm. came out was that sound. And in order for that sound to move on, particularly, you know, Stuart Adamson was the main thrust in the songwriting. We all did chip in and write and co-write, that's for mm -hmm. sure. Mm -hmm. And it took the parts to make what you hear. But his journey was very different to ours and uniquely him and his. And that's reflected in his lyrics and in how the music may grow and change, sometimes yeah. to the de detriment of us, of us because 
when we think, well, we've got a great album, it's a bit different to what we did before. There's a new direction coming. Mm-hmm. We were hammered for it. It's like, oh, it doesn't sound like the old big country. Yeah. Oh, we prefer stuff. That then when we carried on doing things that we were, do we dare change, you know? Um, yeah. It would say, well, you're stuck in the same thing. Your records sound all the same to yeah. those who don't, you know, uh, right. hindsight thing. You can see that they don't sound the same. Yep. Uh, but I think great, great artists do evolve. But great artists also keep their footprint, which we have a very strong yes. footprint. And I think driving to Damascus has a massive big country footprint, but it tells a story of before and after. And not many bands are able to do that because you don't get record deals anymore. Yeah. You hear, you have one or two albums out, you don't hear of them again. Yeah. You know, when we were growing up, we used to wish we were a band in the seventies because we would we would have more chance of success because they would <laughs> seem. To easier to do but actually looking back we were very lucky you know yeah. a very little chance of success because music saturated with downloads and you don't get paid for this and you don't get paid for that you all do it at home home studios mm-hmm. no record deals no investment you got to earn your money you know so it's not an yeah. easy thing but so where we're up with drive damascus it's a brilliant record and it, it immediately makes me realize where i'd been and where I've where, where, where we had arrived at to write, yeah, yeah, and he's telling, giving another side of big country's writing. Um, Stuart was influenced by many, many bands, and uh, those were more reflected in that album, you know, from all kinds of all kinds of things. Yeah. And they were, I wrote with Ray Davis from the Kinks on that record, yeah. There's a story behind that. I, I wanted to ask you about that. I, one thing I was curious about, you talking about Stuart being so influenced by other things. Yeah. He had moved, I believe, to Nashville by that point. And yeah. do you find that his, I, because I think his intention might have been that after this album to sort of take a break, write for other people, immerse himself maybe in like a local country music scene or something like that. Was all of that happening and did it influence the sound or the, the vibe or the creation of Damascus? Yeah, I think it did. You know, we, we, we did, we did some rec- recording out in Nashville, you know, from being a band that was two London guys and two Scottish guys. I mean, log- logistically that was difficult anyway, because we've got 400 miles between us, which is, which feels fire in the lyrics. Uh-huh. Uh, so it was an unlikely, it was an unlikely coming together, which made, which made it very special because you couldn't script this. It was just by chance. Um, you know, the stars lined up that day, if you like, and, and that magic chemistry of the four of us, that we couldn't have scripted this ever happening. Yeah. And, you know, um, Stuart going to Nashville uh, on his journey, his private journey on having to do what he did, um, made it more difficult for us because the other three members of the band were not only 400 miles away from each other, but we were now going 3,000 miles away to, to do demos and record. Yeah. Uh, that that made it more you had to plan a bit bit better for that you know mm-hmm. and it stopped certain things happening so so instantly we couldn't just turn up and do a uh, an impromptu show here or mm-hmm. or just go or next week because the studio became free and we got a new song we'd like to do it there had to be a bit more planning involved and i know i know for sure that tony didn't like going out to to nashville he didn't like mm-hmm. going there mm-hmm. uh, he, he didn't like the country scene or even what nashville kind of represented i guess yeah very different i love the place you know that's yeah. why we spend time living there as well so um yeah it's a, it, it it put a different dynamic in stewart's stewart's writing um he had a you know he's he he was very influenced by willie nelson and all kinds of country country artists <laughs> he grew up as he often said in interviews his mum and dad listened to country music uh, a lot of people in scotland grew up with country music as, as popular music more so than down south where I live. Huh. So it, 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 he really embraced Nashville. Uh, he got involved writing with a guy called Marcus Hammond out there, who was a great writer. Uh, I think it was a Christian-based community that was involved in that. So oh, interesting. It, okay. He had, he had good grounding there with good people around him, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he was – lots of things have changed in his life, you know, um, personally for him. And he, he had a journey to go on. I think he he got the invite from the label. They often team you up with another writing team or another writer to kind of reignite mm-hmm. a, a new side of you, you know, to 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 regenerate something new or to try and generate something new. So Stuart writing with Marcus 
gave him a side project which he'd never really had before. Was this know, the Raphaels? Yeah, the Raphaels. Yeah. He always that was his band, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and our band. I mean, my side projects are my session work, which I still sure. do, and I was many of those session works from Nick Kershaw to Howard Jones to it goes on, it goes mm-hmm. on, the cult, you know, and all those yeah. things. So I had my outlet outside the band, which is good. You know, it keeps, mm-hmm. you, you, you can still, you can appreciate what you have if you step back slightly and, and you, mm-hmm. you're able to step back in again. And I think that was good for Stuart to do at that time for himself. And I think the songwriting got, got reflected in that more worldly, slightly less stereotypical big countries, Celtic bagpipe guitar thing. Right. Um, and for that record, I thought the songwriting was amazing. Those I who loved it. the albums were not sure about it. Uh, I mean, I'm not judging everyone here, but that's the feeling we got as a band that, you know, it didn't have the same success as those three albums because it had a slightly different flavour. It had a, a flavour of the band growing and moving into a newish direction uh, because the music industry, the music was moving with us. It wasn't just us, right. you know, those t- trends that you get from you know the uh, seattle sound and all that they mm-hmm. were all problems we were growing up yeah and they have an on everyone you know you want to be successful and the record company needs to typecast you and you need to you, you they often ask try and steer you into the direction of commerciality mm-hmm. and some you try hard to be like that you don't you've got to let things happen naturally yeah you know so it's a great record i've been working with progal harm was with a band called progal harm for 19 years yeah, uh, yeah. really yeah I don't think I knew that. Yeah, Both the main a, guys, uh, Gary and who's the, the other guy that just passed away? Harry Brooker and Keith Reed was yeah. the lyricist. Yeah. I did The Wells on Fire and um, I can't think of the first album now. Hmm. Um, I did I did three albums with them and many years of touring whilst I was still in Big Country. I did uh-huh. Kept the Plate. Great band to work with, with orchestras and things. I mean, there's, there's a great thing on YouTube, Danish, Danish National Orchestra. With, with wider shade of power it's the whole concert actually live Ooh, got, I'll th- find it 270 million views oh it's inc- yeah it's the last concert I did with Pro Harm because I was now full time with Big Country yeah uh, you know they're, they're, yeah I had a long long uh, tenure with with um, well, with, with Pro Harm along with other people as well yeah sure so where I'm going with that sorry to digress is that that's okay we called uh, the wells on fire well we did an album called prodigal stranger as i took over from bj wilson when he passed they'd been 10 years before the original drummer passed and robin trow was the guitarist involved and i did this record called prodigal stranger they asked me if i could join the band which i i always said i'm in the band but i still have to be available for big country so i was able to both Uh, and i did an album called with progal harm called the wells on fire now a guy called kind of produced that down at roger taylor studio from queen the drummer who's a friend yeah of who did you say produced it rafe mckenna oh okay um now i got to meet rafe but rafe mckenna produced the uh, wells the wells on fire pro haram album and produced driving to damascus oh okay did the um the producer i think he did driving to damascus first and then i recommended him for recommended Pro-Gohara. him for what yeah, yeah. okay an interview i said it the other way around but my timeline is i've done so many things with so many people. a little fuzzy <laughs> uh, but he's a great producer for us because we had the great steve lillywhite do do the first two albums and then we had uh, i texted steve yesterday he told me to tell you hello and give you his love oh, love yeah he's we, we, he's a great friend of mine and uh, you know most incredible producer yeah he what was great about steve in fact all the producers kind of let the bands be you know, I, I do a lot of session drumming and I can see how producers work. And a lot of producers give bands direction. But with Big Country, they kind of just wanted us to play and they would record us. Mm-hmm. And then they would, they would kind of direct. Yeah. As we were on the journey rather than dictate at mm-hmm. the front. You know, yeah. they would give us little nudges left and right or ideas during the process. And Steve, Steve was fantastic for that because... He really, really enjoyed the fact that each musician had their own thing. Mm-hmm. It wasn't the bass player played bass and you heard the root note. Right. No, Tony played bass and wrote songs like that within the band. Yeah. I often wrote 
drum tracks and they would put the music on after. I would just lay down some drums. Nobody recorded drums better than Steve Lillywhite, especially in those early days, and you benefited yeah. from that. Yes, it, it, it kind of defined the 80s in a way, but it was never a gated sound. Sorry, we're talking many times here. But what no, 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 I know what you mean, yeah. yeah. We, we, we were very lucky to be in a great studio called Rack Studio in St. John's with Mickey Most Studio, who was a hit maker back in the 70s and 80s, and I was his house drummer for a while. And the great thing about that room was it was in an old Georgian building in, in St. John's Wood with a very high ceiling, mm -hmm. um, wooden floors, uh, windows so you could see outside so you weren't disorientated it's great to get an idea where you are in the day when you record that okay. kept you safe you know? when it got dark you knew when it was daytime you knew and that's great mm -hmm. being in the studio like that but mm -hmm. the great thing about that room was the drums sounded fantastic just by the way they sounded Oof. you didn't recue anything just put the microphones around them they sounded amazing because the room had a sound and steve was miking the room up in the corner he was marking me close up. He was marking me above. He was marking me below. He was walking around, seeing where it's how it sounded different. Put a microphone there. Put one in the kitchen, you know. And he would mix it all up. But what we didn't do, we didn't do what was considered the gated reverb, which became a a kind of um. People thought that's how you did it. It wasn't. It was right. compression using the room sound mixed in with the close sound that gave that mm -hmm. big fat breathing. Mm -hmm drum sound if you like that um phil collins did with hugh pageant as well yeah yeah we were on the front end of that big drum sound which yeah. really suited the band and steve yeah. would just look i'm not going to tell you what to do you're uh -huh. a guy that's <laughs> go and do it i'll record yeah. you yeah. yeah very much like that with me and he would challenge me he would say you know could you add could you add your second hi-hat while you're doing that what's that you're not hitting there get that in as well and i go well yeah you know i was uh -huh. i love and he would challenge me, do you think you could separate your drums and play the hi-hat separate on this? Could you work it out? And yeah, I could do that for a production value. But, you know, he, he, was, he was an amazing producer to work with. Yeah, he was. He was. Yeah. And when we went on to Robin Miller, um, I don't think Steve was available then. Um, Robin was great as well in a different way. You know, he had a different background from Sade to far more, you know, jazz background, mm -hmm. more more hi-fi sounding records you know yeah. steve was kind of you know from u2 to all the other right. xtc other great bands he's done you know you you had that kind of something steve got that something from you, you he's know? got it he's got it i had peter wolf on here too a few years ago we talked about peace in our time do you feel like he was he shared the right vision of the band for that album and at that time well he was chosen to to be the right vision because oh, was he? Again, what, what the public don't see is there's decisions being made of where, you, where they think they're going. They're investing money in you. Mm -hmm. They want us to try and get you, you know, they wanted us to break America. Mm -hmm. You know, we had to, we had to, you know, we considered a one-off, which I'm very proud of. I mean, mm -hmm. it's better than a one-off. Mm -hmm. You know, we have considered that in America particularly as a one-hit wonder within a big country, you know. Mm -hmm. And that should have really opened the door to lots of things for us. We should have been a big band in America. You know, yes. in hindsight, why it didn't yes. happen. Uh, maybe maybe it was a Celtic thing. I don't know what it was. But Steve uh, Steve produced in a certain way and Peter Wolf produced in a certain way. I mean, incredible, mm -hmm. uh, you know, productions um, yes. Peter Wolf do. Uh, and I know his background. Um, and we, we got on great with him. He was chosen by the record label. Uh, Stuart chose him, actually. Because we oh, got really? A, a, yeah, he, we got a list of producers. And after a meeting with the record label... And what their vision was, where we should be heading in that direction, uh, it was considered that Peter Wolf would be the the best producer for us, mm -hmm. and that, that we should fly to Los Angeles and record out there as well. You know, mm. he was a great producer. I think in hindsight, such a wonderful thing. I'm not sure about some of the songs, you know, because yeah. songs, the songs, you can't, you can never tell what's good or bad. We're too close to it. But I remember the production was incredible. It was a little bit different to what we were doing. Uh, mm -hmm. And for, for, for us Brits in, in England, across the ponds, your radio sounds different to the UK radio. When, when we go, yeah, it, we, we all say the same thing. Every musician says the same thing. When you turn the radio on in America, you immediately know it's American radio, not because of the songs, because of the sound of the radio. Really? Different sound, yeah. And we all love it. It's got low end, high end. It's got all the frequencies. It doesn't sound mono. 
it's got a lot of weight behind it a lot of weight yeah. and it's classically american you know uh, rock radio sound yeah aerosmith to all those big hits that were happening at that time when we were doing peace yeah. in our time they all had that sonic sound that we don't get in england wow we don't we don't I get no it. idea I just love the sound we get from you two to big uh -huh. minds. We get a slightly different sound. You guys produced in a very different way. Mm -hmm. And Peter Wolf was one of those American star producers. He yeah. had a great sound. And we knew we would have a great sounding American radio sound. Mm -hmm. Now, hindsight, when I put that record on, it sounds completely different sonically to what Steve Liddywhite would do. Yes, so it when does. it was hindsight well it didn't sell that great and i remember being at the record label for the launch of the record and where i expected a great reaction in the room when when, when the uh the big wigs were in there financing us and they want to hear the album and all those key people want to hear the fruits of their investment yeah place fell fell quiet after the launch really they didn't much yeah they were like great okay yeah okay you know <laughs> but in a way I kind of, if I'd written down on a bit of paper and you open the envelope, I could have predicted that. Really? Yeah, I was. I wasn't sure that the band would suit that production. Uh, um, I could see that. I remember when it came out, I got it for Christmas because I was a huge fan of yours, and I had heard "King of Emotion" and "Peace in Our Time" on the radio, and uh, I'm I'm loyal to whatever big country is doing, and I was slightly disappointed by the album too, but more because of what you said. That there just weren't enough strong songs around. There were 13 you know, Valleys was nice, and there were a couple others, but it just overall wasn't the same. You know, we, we often threw out B sides that were more commercial and better songs than Good what point. was among. And I, I don't, I, I'm too close to it because I also co write with the band, mm -hmm. and I'm too close to it to see it sometimes, but hindsight and time, I can see it, you know. So at the time, I, you know, I did question the songs because normally I can, I'm very honest to myself. I can't lie yeah. to myself. Yeah. I belong to those songs, some of them. And mm -hmm. some of them were a little bit just chuck away to me. Um, mm -hmm. Although some of the fans love them. I, I, we shouldn't really dare say that. I mean, I did, I don't, I never really, King of Emotion didn't, you know, I can take or leave that. Oh, really? Yeah. You know, it did, did nothing. It sounded great on American radio in 1989 yeah. or whatever that was, 90. Um, you know, it was a bit ploddy. You know, I didn't think it was going to make the album. I mean, it did. It was great production for the American production. Mm -hmm. Probably sounds good on radio, but for me, what it didn't move me. Mm -hmm. The other, the other songs stirred me up. You know, mm -hmm. the, the, uh, having said that, you know, I'm being very candid when I say that. I think it's a great album because, again, the great thing about albums are they are a snapshot of where you were in your life at that time. Good point look at photographs and do the same thing. Oh my God, what was I wearing then? How would I <laughs> wear that? You know, you have to with pictures as you do with an album. Yeah. In fact, they are photo albums, musical albums. They really are. They, they tell the same story. You can either yeah. be shocked with <laughs> photographs. So in a way I'm, I'm kind of feeling a bit like that with it, where like, that makes sense. was I doing that? Why, you know, I, I yeah. think the drumming, drumming's great. The guitar playing's great. The vocals are great. Mm -hmm. I think Stuart, Stuart was singing. People criticized Stuart for singing slightly more Americanized then. Yes. Because I'm in America anyway. And with a Scottish accent, I think, you know, he, that was kind of in the mm -hmm. psyche of, of, of how he was singing. I mean, I, I don't know, you, you know, mm -hmm. I, I, we've never spoken about that. Yeah. Uh, hindsight, you can say those things. Sure. But I did. Oh, go ahead. Record, but not great for big country. Mm. Yeah, I you can know? see that. I could see that. Now you mentioned earlier about working with Ray Davies or Davis, yeah. I should say on this album and the story of how he gets involved. So I, a few years ago, I read Walter Yetnikoff's book and um, he's the one who started the Velvel uh, label that you guys okay. almost got signed to. And I think the kinks were on Velvel and I think Ray was sort of trying to get you on Velvel too. And it didn't work out. Anyway, how did Ray get involved? Well, we'd had association with Ray. I'd he met was a Ray big many, fan of you guys, right? Was and I'd, I'd met Ray before anyway through my association with Pete Townsend. Um, Ray approached. Now I've got to get this right, so apologies if I get this wrong. Because again, 
It's, so it's going back a ways. That, if I was to write a book, I'd have to double check all these things <laughs> and like as much as is recorded. Um, Ray approached us. Uh, I, there was talk about him doing, giving us a record deal for sure. Um, but Ray was also uh, going out to do a gig in Glastonbury. We have a big show out here, the big Glastonbury festival once a year in, in the UK. And he wanted to put the Ray Davis band together. So he, he invited me, Tony. Now I can't believe, I can't remember if it was Stuart or Bruce. One of them didn't do it. Mm. I think it was Stuart that didn't do it. I may be wrong. Or did Stuart do it? Bruce didn't do it. How ridiculous. I can't remember, but, but I'm being honest. So we ended up recording, going to Ray Davis's original studio in North London, where the kinks recorded. We ended up rehearsing there. Um, I will digress slightly. And we played for a bit of fun. You really got me because we were in, I was in some room that that was recorded in and we recorded it on the same mixing desk on oh. tape because my drum sounded sonically exactly like the Kings because the room, I couldn't believe how close to the Kings it sounded. Wow. You know, my drums are very vulnerable. Uh -huh. Guitar, you can, you can control the sound of the guitar more. You can process it. You've got foot pedals. You've got different amplifiers. You can put it in a room with my drum. I'm at the mercy of the room. Mm -hmm. It's like singing in a in a church or singing in a in a bathroom or singing in a in a cupboard. The, right. My voice was different, and the drums are very very vulnerable to that. Mm -hmm. So the drum sound will change drastically, to, which is why I was always fussy about studios because I'm like, oh no, where are we going? What's the drum room like? Mm -hmm. Because me, it doesn't fit anyone else. So yeah, w that drum play the drum room in in his studio. I can't remember what it's called now. Uh, was incredible. Uh, it had the sound in the walls that was reflecting back that was back in the day with the same microphones on. They had the same mics. Wow. So we, we ended up doing Glastonbury with Ray Davis, which was a great thing to do. We were his band. And that relationship continued with him meeting up with Stuart. We didn't end up signing to that label, but w w Stuart ended up meeting up with one of his trips to America because we were demoing and writing and recording in Nashville. He flew over to meet Ray Davis in New York while Ray was out there, and they co-wrote together in New York. So that that's how they they, they wrote in New York. A, a, a relationship was was already there with with us with um Got with it. Ray. Tony, um, what's the now? It's so good to see and hear from you. You're still mm -hmm. retired though, right? You're not in the band anymore, but there's I'm good still... vibes. No one's fighting or anything like that. No, 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 there never has been. Okay. Never good. No, I, I I pulled myself out of the game in twelve in twenty twelve because my health was suffering, and it really I I hadn't had a very good time, and uh, and the, the it was something I had to sort of make a very very big conscious decision to to, to step out. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, I knew what that would mean, and it was something that uh, I found difficult uh, to start with, but. Um, you know, I, I'm I'm 66 years old now, and um, you know I'm not too old to rock and roll, but I'm certainly too old to be prancing around on the stage like an idiot that I used to. And, uh, <laughs> you know, and, uh, I appreciate the guys a, a bit younger than me, and they can still do it, so it's great. But um, yeah, no, I've had to make a decision to sort of go right. You know, this is my time, my time yeah. to stop and and do other things and enjoy other aspects of life. You know, so uh, absolutely. You know, uh, but I, I, I did leave with an incredible amount of pride at, you know, my career with the band. Sure. And, you know, and uh, the, the legacy of the band will hopefully live on, you know, f into the future because what we did was timeless. Yeah. My production partner, um, who I do have been doing this podcast with for eight years, he lives in Dunfermline. And, okay. um, and I went out to visit him a few years ago and he showed me Balmoral and uh, the local, all the local big country, you know, tourist sites or whatever. And in fact, he was telling me that last year, now this isn't you, Tony, but last year he went to you guys's, I think it was an anniversary show at the Glen Pavilion with uh, the skids and the armory show. Richard Jobson's also been on here. And so anyway, some fun connections between you guys. Tony, my understanding, one thing I wanted to ask you about was that the album Damas driving to Damascus when it came out as John Wayne's dream in America and I'm still fuzzy on why there needed to be two different things you were the one who sort of 
remixed it or something for that version. Is that right? I probably remastered it. Remastered, yes. Yeah, because um, I, I kind of I got into sort of it's it's again a part a part of my experience of being in big country was getting really involved in the production side of things, and you know I I considered myself a student of Steve Lillywhite. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and I always took an interest in how, you know, the albums were put together in the production side because, uh, you know, I had, I kind of had ambitions for doing some production work myself, but, uh, uh -huh. to sit next to all these people, you know, it was too good an opportunity to miss. And, uh, things like remastering was something that I, I did because I just found it fun. Yeah. Um, I mean, the driving to Damascus aspect of it, the reason why I think this box set is important is the fact that, there was a lot of work done towards the final product, which yeah. wasn't going to see the light of day because, you know, you couldn't fit all those tracks onto one album. And I don't think the record company were really interested in doing a double album. Yeah. So uh, John Wayne's dream, you know, as the American version was kind of, okay, let's, let's just use some of that stuff. But mm -hmm. the box set is, is the whole yeah. kit and caboodle regarding everything that went into the creation of driving to Damascus in yeah. the first uh, Mark and I were talking before you got on, obviously, about where the band was at and what went into making that album. I'm curious of your take, because when I was talking to Mark, I was saying, it's first of all, it's a shame that this is the last real official album of the band, because I feel like it's you guys finally found your footing after those original, there's the original period that's, as Mark and I were saying, sort of bagpipey or whatever. Then there's the mm -hmm. transitional stuff from Peace in Our Time and and Buffalo Skinners and Why the Long Face, where you're sort of tr you're you're still big country, but you're not leaning or relying on those sounds that made you unique in the first place. You're sort of carving out a new niche for yourself, and you got it with Damascus. It's such a strong album, start to finish. But then it's sort of it felt to me like you found your new footing, but then there was nothing else after that. Granted, Stewart died, but do yeah, you think well, you would have continued? Oh, definitely. Yeah. Most definitely. I mean, just the, the passage of time from us going to Nashville to do the demos initially, you know, the, we, we just come up off the back of, you know, one of, I, one of the, <laughs> this is really weird for me because of the Buffalo Skinners, I was thought was a great album, yeah. but it didn't have Mark on it. Good we point. had Simon Phillips, who's a you know a nice little junior, yeah, and uh, <laughs> junior version of Mark. Right, Simon's a great drummer too, but he's not Mark. Yeah. And then we also had um, that other album. Um, I can't even remember the name of it now. Why the long face? What? Well, why the long face? That was a real transitional sort yeah. of thing, and um, you know it was finding a foot again, getting away from the typecast. Uh -huh. Because as Mark would have probably said to you, you know that the whole bagpipe guitar. Uh, regimental drumming that was really a huge kind of usp for the band mm -hmm. but it was something that was becoming a little bit of a burning noose around the band's neck mm -hmm. and uh, you know off, uh, as opposed to being fascinated by it we're being lambasted by it yeah. so yeah. i had to find a different direction and, and particularly in the buffalo skinners bruce and i definitely took the band into a sort of slightly louder guitar phase Mm -hmm. You know, we, we wanted to sort of get a bit more into rock songs, but ironically, Stuart was getting more into country songs. Yeah. So that album was kind of mixed and, and sort of slightly imbalanced from that point. But we did get to a, a point with, with Driving to Damascus where we were all back into a groove and, you know, and it wasn't really put together. It was just something that happened. The songs that were coming out resembled that. I think Rafe McKenna was very, very influential in, you know, helping us through you know the 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 realization of that album to make sure that you know it was big country of the late 90s and it was really going to be representative of what the band would possibly move on to do and everything was going really well up until the the debacle about the, the single fragile thing yeah and so i want to ask about this the it, it the single packaging has too many folds or something explain well, this to me because what a mess I remember when I was teaching, I used to teach kids the difference between a jewel case and a, a plastic package. But apparently there's a difference between a jewel case or a box jewel case. 
which means you can open the box and you can put jewels in it. And the people didn't like it. And they destroyed the band's career because of that. Oh. And that's that's what it's all about. Oh. But, but seriously, the the idea that you know a piece of packaging can sort of lame a band's progress really sort of came into the fore here. We did oh. not have a chance after that. I know Stuart's head, head dropped. Mm-hmm. And if you understand what I mean by that, you know, yeah. I th- it was kind of the last straw of trying to sort of do something well with the band in Britain yeah. and in Europe. And he scuttled off to America and, you know, things sort of went from worse to worse. Yeah. There's a song on the box set, Another Misty Morning, Tony, that you sing. <laughs> and now you've gone on and made some solo albums, but at the time, what I mean, I don't think that song. Sorry, I mean, do, you know what that, do you know what that title means? No, what? <laughs> Were you dating someone named Misty at the time? No, no, another Misty. It's all about solving yourself. Really? <laughs> Sorting yourself out in the morning, right? In the morning. <laughs> Let's kick this yeah. day off with a little something for myself. How shall I start the day off? Let me just make myself feel better. Yeah. <laughs> that was the Ooh, now I gotta play it again. <laughs> uh, but um but, it's, but I think you know, again, you you've picked out that song. Uh-huh. There's a lot of material that was flourishing around the Damascus time. Yeah. And we were all producing stuff and it was you know, it was a really sort of a potent time. But um it was. It was still kind of. I don't know. Uh, I, I don't know what Mark's view and take of it. But I mean, I didn't particularly enjoy the 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 the, um, the Nashville stuff. That's what he was saying. Uh, that uh, he obviously loves it, but you never really caught yeah, to yeah. coming but, all the but way but out here. That was the beauty of the band. You know. Yeah. We could all be honest about what we like and what we disliked, mm-hmm. and I, I I wasn't too enamoured by some of the stuff that was coming out, although I thought they were good songs. I didn't think they were big country. Right. Uh, and and the, the de- demo sessions just grew and grew into material that started to feel like the band were sort of coming together again, musically and, and songwriting-wise, into something that started off from all different directions. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Another Misty Morning, as opposed to Sun and My Shadow, yeah. you know, they're diametrically opposed. But... The, the, the songs that arrived at the album sort of came through that sort of cross fertilization, yeah. Which when the Bowsatters had to do, you know, we, we'd been doing it for a long time. We'd been lambasted because we were typecast, and we had to find our place in that era of music that made us, you know, what 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 people respected us before mm-hmm. about. When you say you didn't like the Nashville period, do you not? Do you mean you don't like? This might be too strong. Were you not crazy about the music that was coming out at the time? Was it that you just didn't really like Nashville? And uh, you can say I'm not offended if you're like you know I just I'm I'm a Brit. I'm no, not an American. There was there was kind of two things. I mean, again, it was Stuart's Nashville and country influence mm-hmm. that I felt was coming through on the songs. Mm-hmm. And some songs were good, and some songs just bored the, the tits off of me. Right. And I, and I, I wasn't terribly happy, but. <laughs> I related this incident earlier on to Mark, so sorry for repeating myself. But um, we had a day off, and I was sitting in a in a diner watching a game. And next minute, these two policemen sort of come raging into the the diner and, and picked me up, lifted me up, and put me into a squad car. What? And then they and then they started to interrogate me, and and I knew I was in trouble when they started telling me to speak you know proper proper English or proper uh-huh. American. And I said, well, I'm from London. And I showed them my, my, my driving license, and they thought it was Mickey Mouse. Oh. And, um, and, I, and I was getting really frightened because, you know, I'm, I'm fully aware. I'm a worldwide, world, worldly wise person. Yeah. And I thought this could either deteriorate really badly, uh, and I may not come out of this very well. And I, and I had no idea why they did it. Anyway, uh, eventually uh, they let me back in to the diner. Yeah. The, the diner owner came out just to see if I was okay because I was pretty shaken. Yeah, and he he, he took out a, a, um, a copy of the Tennessean, which had a picture of this person that they were looking for, oh. which happened to be a black guy in a black hat, 
and um, they thought it looked like me. So that in itself just kind of made me think, I'm not sure if I want to do this. Yeah. If, I, if I'm not welcome in your town, fine, just tell me and I'll go. Oh. And, that's, and that's the way it was. And because of that, the subsequent writing session, Mark and Bruce went out to America on their own. But I stayed home. I just couldn't see myself going through that. So we were all dealing with shit. Yeah. While I was trying to put all this together and, and Stuart being in America all the time made communications quite difficult, you know, yeah. when you're in a band. I mean, the only time we ever spent time together is when we were on the road. And when, when we weren't, you know, we're scattered of, of, across the four corners of, the, of Great Britain, but let alone Stuart being America's. That was pretty tough. So, yeah. But by oh, the time man. we got to Brookfield to start recording the album or to, to when we started doing the pre production, you know, we had a lot of material to draw on. And also, there was a, there was a kind of renewed spirit in the band, which was great. Mm hmm. Tony, can you just want to when we did played Glastonbury with Ray Davis, who yeah. didn't do it? You and who else was it? Bruce or Stuart? Bruce didn't do it. It was Bruce that didn't do it. So there yeah. you go, Joe. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. One of my um we have Patreon supporters. I'll I'll we'll wrap up here in a minute, by the way. I we have Patreon supporters and I always tell them who I'm interviewing and if they want to submit questions, they can. And one mm -hmm. of them, Matthew Quinlan. He's a Brit who lives in America now, and he was saying that he saw you guys supporting Queen at Nebworth in 1986, and what an amazing show that was, one of the best crowds and best you know shows he's ever been to. What shows stand out to you two? Do you remember? Maybe it's the Ray Davies things, but I not in the States, unfortunately, because we've established that Americans are idiots, and we did not treat a big country with the love you deserved. Ugh. But um, but it's a shame that we didn't really get us get a chance to really get out there and prove ourselves. Though you know, tell we me about it. Stuff, but not enough. As a kid who has been devoted to big country since the very first time you heard him on the radio at like nine or ten years old, I feel you when you say that, Tony. What are yeah. some of the other shows? Do you remember? I've only seen you once, and you weren't there, Tony. But it was when you guys came through with Mike Peters, Mark, with the journey album yeah. and um you played denver this little during the day it's a pizza club and a pizza place and at night it's more of a club and uh mike had just got, i think gone through some chemo like that day and so he was really weak and couldn't stand up very well and anyway it was kind of an emotional experience for all of us mm. what are some shows that stand out to you guys oh dear man there's so many i bet so um, no, i agree i i so many. I mean, I, I, I mean it's, it's rather than sort of picking on individual shows or sort of atmospheres. My, as you will imagine, I've been out of the picture now for quite some time, mm -hmm. and when I do think about it, I just get this kind of kind of uh, image in my head of just people yeah. sweating profusely, throwing themselves and their spirits up to the yeah. stage. Yeah, and uh, and I just you know it's you can't feel it because it's a it's a memory. But I I, I sometimes break out into a sweat when I'm thinking about it at nights, and you know really? just just reminding myself of what what the music was doing That's to it. all those people at the time. And you know, and, and when I sort of see uh, the younger generations, like, like my my children, they're all sort of grown up now, and uh, and younger generations, and they say, oh, I saw this band yesterday they were the best band i've ever seen and i think to myself you never saw big country I, you have no idea <laughs> and, and, yeah you've got no idea what yeah. good really is yeah and yeah. i can't tell them that and, and i would never sort yeah. of profess to do that but that's what's going on up here i don't doubt it i don't doubt it okay i'll let you go last thing mark is there a moment on the damascus album that you feel particularly proud of or that you think I love the way I did this thing or whatever. Is there a moment on that album that stands out as being special for you? No, the no. whole album. <laughs> a bit like what Tony said, you can't, you can't hone into that, to that minutiae of, 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 mm. of it because it's, it's a journey we were on and, and going into doing the record. I thought it was a fantastic sounding record. Yeah. I thought the song 
as Tony said, we were onto something new. You know, we weren't stuck in our own uh, own way that we were considered. You know, when we were criticised of sounding the same, and when we had the the uh, energy and the braveness to move on, we were often criticised. You know, so mm-hmm. before even anyone had heard it, the recording of the album was 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 great. We had great songs, as Tony said. I thought it was a great direction that we were heading. And I, you know, from my own personal view, I thought we played as great on that record as any other record, which is why it stands up, mm-hmm. which is why I say there's no, oh, I only like that bit, I don't like that. I thought it's a fabulous record, a great sounding record. You put it on, it sounds it, it, it sounds great on the stereo, and those songs are great. Yeah, really is. And, and I always maintained, and I still will do to this day, that Driving to Damascus would have made a great single, and that may have come out as the second single, if uh, fragile thing had sort of run its course. Yeah. 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 It's a fantastic album. Mm-hmm. Um, guys, I, I couldn't love you more. I mean, the, the things that both of you have put into this world have made my life so much better by knowing it and, and listening to the two of you. I cannot stress that enough. The, the positive impact you've had on certain people's lives. It's enormous. Thank you for all your efforts in your life. That's well, great. the positive impact that Mark Brzezicki's had on my life has been just as enormous. I'm Tony about this five. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. All right, there you have it. Big country, Mark and Tony. Again, we're just super honored that the guys of this stature who mean this much to us would come back on our show and talk to us about the release of this fantastic album. Cherry Red Records, It's a four-disc deluxe edition of Driving to Damascus. It's got everything you could ever want on it. And I hope, after hearing some things on here about the creation of this album and where they were and what was going on, that you would have a new appreciation for it, too, as I did, because it is so, so strong. Probably the best, well, they might disagree, probably the best album of their latter-day period, that post-bagpipe period, if you ask me. All right? Anyway. Thanks to these guys, and thanks to Matt Ingham at, uh, at Cherry Red for helping make this happen. Guys, you know what to do. You can like our page on Facebook. You can send us a message on there. You can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com. Or you can find us on Twitter at the hot hustle, at the hustle pod. And, of course, a huge thanks to Yan, my right-hand man. We'll see you on Tuesday. Thanks, everybody. We love you.